Welcome. This episode of Inside the Genome is a recent recording of Myriad Oncology Live, a webinar hosted by me, Dr. Thomas Slavin, Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs at Myriad Oncology. The opinions and views expressed in this recording do not necessarily represent those of Myriad Genetics or its affiliates. To participate in a future recording, please visit Myriad Oncology for a list of dates, times, and subjects. I look forward to exploring the world of genetics with you all. Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Myriad Oncology Live. Thank you for coming on today. I know it's late in the day for many people, but this is why we're here. I I don't know what people heard, but yes, this is an open forum. Uh, You know, you can ask anything you want. We do uh, them theme-based. And today uh, is uh, tumor versus germline. So you know, today's a later one, uh, 6 p.m. Eastern. uh, So we normally don't do them this late in the day. But I uh, wanted to get some on the schedule. Uh, you know, we try to sprinkle it in for people on the East Coast. Maybe they can join after clinic. I do to try to generally keep the later ones uh, a little bit more generic um, in terms of uh, the discussion points. That way, um, you know, people can come on, ask literally whatever they want. So tumor versus germline testing and everything in between is a, is a pretty broad topic. Uh, and next week, uh, next week's actually an off week. And then uh, uh, we're going to be uh, getting back into polygenic risk scores, uh, June 10th. Uh, I've had a people, few people email me about what is PRS. So it's polygenic risk score. So we'll have to, uh, probably shouldn't put the acronym on there. And then, uh, June 15th, uh, we're going to be talking about cancer survivorship. So I'm trying to get a special guest for both of these just, uh, was sending out some emails today. Uh, so it should be exciting. Um, and then we'll come back in July with, uh, hereditary genes, limited guidelines. I do want to also point out, uh, we've been putting these now, uh, you know, when you signed on, you probably saw it's uh, recorded. So there's been requests uh, for these, uh, as you would guess, to record them in some way, shape or form so people can listen to them uh, later. Um, So what we're doing now is, uh, you know, we are recording them. We're not using the video, though. Uh, We're going to just use the audio. And we actually already started posting this online. Um, so I saw this today. I was just like, Whoa, what's all this? So but these are the, uh, this is a, a, a podcast series that I do that's at the bottom of that link. And it's called inside the genome. And we're just gonna put these in. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them right now that just got uploaded since we uh, just started this. But you'll start seeing them more just sprinkled in in uh, amongst podcasts. The Myriad Oncology Live will always be MOL. Um, this is a work in progress. We might need to even change. I mean, this probably isn't the best acronym right now. Um, most people would have no idea what this means. So I think we need to do a little work here. Uh, but uh, yeah, the difference is, you know, the Myriad Oncology Live ones now, you know, these are going to be 45 minutes to 60 minutes uh, that you can just go back and listen to. But we've had some really good ones lately. And uh, if you didn't listen to the LGBTQ um, one, if you weren't able to make that webinar, that was a fantastic one. We had uh, Eduardo Villar on um, uh, a week and a half ago. That was a really, or two weeks ago. That was a really good one uh, talking about vaccines and uh, chemo prevention for Lynch syndrome. Um, and, uh, and then the podcasts themselves are only about 15 minutes. So these are usually similar topics, but these are essentially me, uh, sometimes joined by Shelly, just sitting down with one guest, um, just kind of going through, you know, hot topics and things. Uh, so yeah, definitely take a peek. There's 
plenty of content. I was, it's kind of shocking. I've been here for a year and then when I'm looking at this, I'm even impressed sometimes <laughs> myself to now see how much is on there. Um, but today we are joined, uh, I'm gonna stop sharing my screen. We're actually joined uh, by a special guest, um, uh, Mallory. And Mallory, I have no idea how to say your last name. <laughs> That's okay, no one does. <laughs> I apologize in advance, but Mallory is from Intermountain uh, Healthcare, uh, and I invited her on because, you know, they've been uh, uh, really just impressing me. We've been doing some work with them, uh, and uh, yeah, Mallory, if you want to, uh, yeah, unmute and, you know, kind of tell people what you do there, uh, a little bit about the program, I think that'd be fantastic. And people can, oh, and one other quick housekeeping before we uh, leave and, and go there. If you, uh, you know, always encourage you to just unmute, ask questions, you know, especially now that we're uh, putting this in some sort of audio format. If you don't want to, um, you can always just send questions to Diana. Uh, so Diana is running the chat today and she will just read them out uh, so we, we can capture them uh, for the recording. So thank you very much. So yeah, Mallory, if you want to introduce yourself a little bit. Well, thanks so much for having me, TJ. Um, my name is Mallory Stano, so pronounce the D like a T. Uh, my husband's family tells me it's a made-up name, so there's a kind of a fun story with that. Um, but I am a laboratory genetic counselor with Intermountain Precision Genomics. Um, I, so I do, I wear many hats actually um, through through my role. Um, I, I like to tell people that I kind of have three main areas that I focus on. So first is, is kind of your traditional laboratory genetic counselor supporting our Intermountain Precision Genomics or IPG clinical testing laboratory. Um, we have a, a menu of tests um, that we can talk about in a minute, um, but supporting the team there um, through you know, R&D, process development, liaising with clinicians, working with the variant science team, um, all, that, all that good stuff that supports a laboratory. Um, another hat that I wear um, that I'm pretty passionate about is laboratory stewardship, specifically in the genetic testing space. So I'm working with the Genetic Laboratory Stewardship Committee. I'm currently the chair of that committee for all of Intermountain to work on stewardship efforts as they relate to genetic testing. And then in my last little bit sliver of time, I'm also doing some clinical neurology genetic counseling oh. via telehealth. Um, so okay. love that keeps me, helps keep me grounded and, and keep me uh, realistic when I'm doing stewardship efforts as well. So yeah, what is the stewardship? What can you go into that a little bit more? I don't completely understand what that is. Yeah, so really, the, the goals of the stewardship program are to make sure that the right patient gets the right test at the right time. Um, so one one branch of that can be uh, reviewing send out genetic testing. So mm -hmm. testing that's going to be sent outside of our system, just giving it a quick once over. Hey, is this, if it's an outpatient testing, was there a pre-auth that was obtained so that we make sure the patient doesn't get stuck with a huge bill? Um, if it's inpatient, you know, how how is this going to impact the the inpatient stay, what are the costs to the family, to the system, um, what medical management is gonna occur if we do this genetic testing. Um, and then within the committee, another aspect that we've been doing is looking through our test menu and finding, you know, is there is there testing that's being over or underutilized within the system? And then how do we target that testing? Um, how do we, you know, are there nomenclature changes we need to make in our test menu to make it more clear that, you know, test A is what you're actually looking for instead of test B? Um, is there something that just needs to be completely removed from the, the testing menu entirely? And we've done that recently mm -hmm. as well. Okay. So it's and, pretty broad. Okay. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, I have been thoroughly impressed by uh, your system. I mean, you know, traveling the country, you know, there's, uh, you know, a lot of systems are getting in, health systems are really getting involved in precision genomics much more than they have in the past. But there are some that are really leading, uh, you know, in my mind, uh, the world. And uh, Intermountain, I, I put on a pedestal uh, kind of up there with, uh, you know, the way I think of Geisinger now. And I know, you know, there's some, um, you know, like uh, one of your geneticists, Nephi, uh, spoken with him, came from Geisinger. But you're starting to, uh, there's some similarities there. Um, and just, just the work that you're doing, I mean, I was thinking if you could kind of give a little, I don't know how long you've been there, but maybe you could give a little backstory of, you know, how you, your organization really turned into, you know, where it is today and maybe kind of where it's going, you know, on the precision genomics side. Yeah. So I'm a little bit newer to the team. I've um, started right before the pandemic shut everything down. So I have a, a little bit of an atypical experience at Intermountain thus far. Um, but it's been a, a fabulous group. Um, there's some really dedicated people um, and really wanting to make um, make precision medicine the best it can be. Um, one of our big initiatives is a, a, a big research study called Heredigene, um, where we're looking to enroll 500,000 individuals and to do um, whole genome sequencing on them, make a huge research database that then um, various researchers can use anytime they have clinical genomic questions in the future and, and um, just really providing that resource to them. And so we can improve treatments, we can improve care and really, um, you know, Use, use DNA and use genomics as a way to improve patient health. Um, so I think that's, that's a really exciting initiative that we're yeah. really pushing forward with. Yeah, and, and um, tell us a little bit about that because that, that's one uh, uh, interest of mine. I mean, um, you know, as an organization, how are you, you know, a patient walks in the door, go. <laughs> you know, how, how do they get into Heredigene? You know, what do you do with those results? You know, how is the mm -hmm. patient you know, consented, what's the kind of feedback that you've been getting uh, since you've been doing that? Because, you know, again, there's not many health centers doing that. I mean, right. I, you could, you can tell me, but I, I can think of, you know, uh, you know, you, you know, again, Geisinger, not many, maybe a handful of others, you know, some cancer centers are starting to do this, uh, but yeah, not on this kind of scale. Right. It's a, it's a huge initiative. It's a yeah. huge lift. There are a lot, a lot of people involved. Um, there's a, you know, a great group that's um, involved even just in enrollment. Um, so they, we've got several different enrollment um, kind of outreach uh, programs, I guess you could call them. Um, so one is, you know, just just ad campaigns and, and having people hear about the study and be interested and reach out to us. But we're also being very proactive and reaching out to uh, maybe a patient that's um, been to the laboratory, had a blood draw just for their routine clinical care. Um, and we've got teams that are um, that are identifying, hey, there's a little bit of blood left over from doing your CBC. And then we've got teams calling saying, hey, we're, we're doing this research study. Would you like to participate? We could actually use the rest of this sample um, that's left over from the testing you've already had. So you don't even need to go back and get another blood draw. There's also um, a digital enrollment that just went live recently. So patients and you know healthcare providers, anyone um, can go online, go through the consent process online, and then whenever it's convenient for them, head over to an Intermountain Draw Lab and, and get their blood drawn to participate in the study. So, so the patient can go directly to that e-consent or mm -hmm. a provider can do it with the patient in the office? Is that how you said yeah, that? Yeah, providers can absolutely refer patients to the, to the Heredigene study, head um, over to our they website. They just give them the, the email? 
uh, for the e-consent or like, you know, say, you know, can you come down and consent my patient kind of thing? Yeah, they can contact um, our group. Um, I believe the website is uh, hereditygene.org. Now I'm mm -hmm. double checking that. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, and we can also, you know, our, our genomics team at Intermountain is happy to direct um, if a patient has specific questions about, you know, about what the study is. And, um, you know, sometimes you hear weird things about genetic research on mm -hmm. social media or whatnot. And so, so I think sometimes they get some unique questions from patients um, and our, the, the consent team is great for that. Um, yeah. What's the uptake been from the patient been, side? It's been good. Most people are really excited about the study. Most of them are really um, you know, it, it really kind of hits at the altruistic heartstrings, I think, of people that they want to contribute to genomic medicine, they want to contribute to a better future in medicine, you know, they're thinking about kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, friends, neighbors, and thinking, wow, if I could, you know, I can contribute, you know, some blood and some information to this study, and then hopefully those you know, those in the future, those researchers will be able to use that information to really benefit others. And so I think it's a, you know, it's a, it's a really cool initiative. And just, again, just pulling at people's altruistic heartstrings and, and the yeah. desire to make the world a better place. Yeah. And what, what do, do the patients get anything out of it themselves? They do. So what we, what we've set up is that um, anytime for all, so all patients get the testing. And then if we find what we call a clinically actionable result, um, so for this audience, say a BRCA1 mutation, um, we are returning those results to patients. We send them a letter saying, hey, we, it's a pretty generic letter. Hey, we think we found something. You know, here's the information to contact a genetic counselor. We get um, any patient in touch with our awesome genetic counseling team. Um, and so they're able to go in have a discussion with that genetic counselor about, hey, this was a research test. This is what we found. We'd like to confirm it clinically. The, the study will, will pay for all that and coordinate it all. And we'll, we'll confirm this variant in, you know, in, a, in a CLIA lab. And here's what the implications could be for you and your family and for your healthcare. Um, so it's a really great way to um, link together the clinical genetic counseling with the researchers um, and with patients and have everyone just really work together to, to improve health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And um, how long are you looking at doing this? I mean, is this going to be a five-year kind of project, 10-year indefinite? Yeah. Is there... It's definitely a five-year project. Um, we've got, we, we need to finish enrolling everybody. And then, you know, again, as long as it takes to get through um, the rest of, get through all that, all that data, contact all those patients, get them in for a genetic counseling session. So um, I believe enrollment is at least five years. Um, and I would anticipate that the returning of the results would stretch on for several years beyond that as well. Um, yeah. And what kind of, what, what results are you giving? Um, like ACMG 59 results, uh, anything? Yeah. Else? Yeah. So most, most or now that I guess type. 73. Right. The, yes, exactly. That type um, of results. So things that are, you know, important for healthcare, clinically actionable, you know, like I mentioned, you know, BRCA, Lynch syndrome mutations, cardiology, um, mostly in that category, um, thinking along the lines of the, of the ACMG 73. I'm going to have a hard time switching that up. I'm so used to saying 59. Yeah, yeah for those of you who have not seen, and I, I actually still have to even look at the publication, but there's been a few other genes added uh, mm -hmm. to the ACMG 59. Uh, this was 56 and yeah, we'll probably continue to go up over time. <laughs> so no good. And, um, uh, I mean, what, what other kind of things are you doing? I mean, I, I know, you know, we're, we're involved a little bit on the tumor sequencing side. Mm 
which I've been very impressed. I mean, I was down in the uh, St. George, uh, Utah laboratory, uh, I don't know, two weeks ago or so, and was really uh, blown away just by the sheer amount of lab space and equipment and everything else. I mean, uh, you know, as for a health system, you guys are really doing great things uh, and have a, have a great infrastructure. But what, what other kinds of, uh, so you have the tumor side of things, you have the, you're doing the Heredigene project, um, you know, what other kind of genomic initiatives do you have ongoing? Yeah, we have a couple different clinical tests. So the, the Theramap or the TSO 500, um, which we're partnering with Myriad on, um, is a fantastic platform, a fantastic test, something we're all really excited about. We also have a pharmacogenomic test called RX Match, um, mm -hmm. as well as some um, clinical germline hereditary cancer panels. Um, so a Compared to you know the lab cores of the world, they're a little smaller test menu, but it's um, it's pretty exciting for for our system yeah, to, no, to have the to have this menu and have this kind of diversity. Even um, as you know the 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 team and the the expertise required to have a both a somatic and a germline test in house is um, a pretty big lift. So it's yeah really neat that we have both of those and that we've got such great people working on both of these products. Yeah, no, it's uh, really been incredible. And, you know, what, what kind of strain has it put, if any, on the system? You know, you, here you are, you're, uh, you know, really ramping up genomics, you're doing genetics on everybody walking through the door for the most part. <laughs> um, I mean, what have you seen from, uh, you know, the infrastructure? Uh, how have you adapted, you know, the clinics and things? That's a great question. You know, I think, um, you know, my bias as a genetic counselor is that we just need to hire more and more genetic counselors always. <laughs> um, but Diana agrees with that. Um, but I think providers well, are usually really a largely genetic counselor audience. So you're probably making a lot of friends right now. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I, I would say most of the providers have been very supportive. Um, there's a lot of support and involvement in the Theramap process internally. And um, part of the part of that Theramap process is we do a molecular tumor board every other week. And that's just a fantastic opportunity to cross collaborate. I know I learn a lot every week from the various oncologists that attend and um, get to a glimpse into their world and, and, the, and the treatments and just what they know about the medications and, and the the course of a cancer, um, whereas I'm coming at things from a germline perspective, and we've got our clinical variant scientists there as well. It's just such a cool opportunity to collaborate. And I think a lot of people are really excited about that and, and knowing that, okay, I'm a provider, I want to integrate genetics into my practice, but I don't have to know everything. There are other specialists here within the system that I can, I can lean on. There are genetic counselors that, you know, we can share patients and there's clinical variant scientists if I don't fully understand what's going on in a report. And um, so it's, it's nice to have that all within the system and it's yeah definitely been great. Yeah, I was gonna ask you a question about that that I thought maybe the audience would connect yeah. with because uh, they seem very in tune with that. You're on the phone uh, or you're there in clinic or whatever the version might be. Uh, do you have a standard set of guidelines to say, hey, refer this patient to me, even if it's a lung patient that's 79 but there's this finding or are you, is your idea to be there so that they can ask those questions in the moment um, yeah. or a little bit of both? Great question. So our oncology genetic counseling team is fantastic and they've built a lot of relationships directly with providers and done some education in that realm of, hey, these are the patients um, to send over to us. But specifically with our Theramap process, uh, we've got a great collaboration between our clinical 
genetic counseling team, our variant science team, and then myself and our other laboratory genetic counselor to review these TheraMap cases and, and flag, hey, I think this patient should actually be referred for germline. Um, we meet as a committee, we kind of flag all the cases, meet as a committee, go through each of them to say, you know, yes or no. And then the, the clinical team actually reaches out to the provider saying, hey, based on these, these TheraMap results or based on your patient's cancer type, you know, referral to genetic counseling is indicated. Here's some information about how to refer your patient mm -hmm. and, and do that reach out. So that's a, a really neat follow-up step um, that we've implemented to help support the, the providers in doing this testing. Yeah. And it's a fine line. And, and you yeah. know, like uh, Diana was bringing up, I mean, the kind of the lack of, you know, clarity and guidelines. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, is a lot of it just kind of like, yeah, this is a high risk for, you know, we did tumor sequencing, this person is a high risk to have a germline mutation based on X, Y, and Z, or is it kind of, and, and this person's at a, almost no risk, so we're not going to recommend them, or, you know, I'm, I'm assuming there's a lot of gray zones and things <laughs> like that, and, and is it kind of just going with your gut to some extent right now, or is it like, nah, it's probably unlikely. Um, there's you know, never, know, there's never gray zone in genetics. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, it's definitely been a learning experience. And um, we try to follow NCCN guidelines as much as possible. So when we see someone, you know, we did their map on a pancreatic tumor, okay, pa based on just their history of a pancreatic tumor, let's yeah. refer them. Um, but then when it comes down to actual variants, it's a lot of, well, this was, you know, about 50% allele frequency. And, you know, our variant science team looks at it and the germline team says, yeah, you know, I think if this was in the germline, it would be classified as pathogenic. So it would be actionable. And all right, let's reach out to the provider then. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, it can get really tricky because, you know, TP53, we think about as genetic counselors and germline as, oh my gosh, like the worst mutation ever. But it's in all kinds of somatic tissue and it's, yeah. it's there all the time. So it's, it's interesting having to shift your perspective a little bit and, and recognize which, which mutations and which genes are just very commonly mutated in somatic tissue compared to germline and, and kind of where that level of concern is. Um, we try to lean on the air of, on the side of maybe over referring a little bit. Um, and at, cause I've, if nothing else, it's a great conversation for the patient to have yeah. with a genetic counselor about family history and risks. And, you mm -hmm. know, they may decide to not pursue any sort of germline testing, but they've at least gotten some information and had that opportunity. Yeah. I do, I do personally think the field's ripe for uh, like an online algorithm uh, that, you know, somebody, if someone's on there, uh, yeah, <laughs> if someone's online and wants to develop one, I'm, I'd fully support you. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I, I think we're starting to get more data. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, because I was looking into some of this when I was at City of Hope, um, you know, because you kind of have a priori risk. So, I mean, if you're seeing somebody with an mm -hmm. ovarian cancer and they come back with a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, that's pretty concerning, you know, that it might be in their right. germline. Um, whereas, you know, if you see someone with an ovarian cancer and comes back with like an ATM variant, um, you know, and I guess I'm getting at like, you know, kind of allele frequency somewhere in the yeah. middle, uh, you know, ATM, we just know is common in the population and the germline, mm -hmm. you know, it's not really a driver of ovarian cancer. I mean, so you can, you can right. start making these kind of, you know, what is the likelihood that, you know, this particular variant and. And I, I, I do think that, yeah, probably plugging in like variant allele frequency, the variant, mm -hmm. the cancer type, we could probably, we probably have enough data starting, you know, starting to be out in the public realm that, you know, could really just get at, uh, you know, what's the real risk that this is maybe in somebody's 
germline. I mean, maybe even pulling in family history or something like that. Yeah. So. Yeah, so I just project. dropped in the uh, the chat for anybody that wants to play around with it because we've been messing around with it lately just to see what's in there. But mycancergenome.org, mm. uh, you would be able to put in uh, it asks for you can go by disease site or gene, but you could put in breast cancer and see well how frequently is p10 mutated in the tumor to know hey, this, this actually isn't very right. common in the tumor at all, or it really is. So it, I don't know how clinically useful it is, but it might give you just well, a I think it's, it's like the first idea. part of that, but I think there, we, we definitely have a, a, I think something could be developed that then takes that information and really gets it, you know, kind of yeah. like a, a likelihood or something. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's uh, my cancer genome's great. Uh, you know, see by portal is kind of similar, you know, if you want to look at like frequencies amongst tumors, mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of these used uh, TCGA mm -hmm. data sets uh, or like published data sets from like Memorial Sloan Kettering or something like that. So what would you use then as your cutoffs for this algorithm? Does that just kick the can farther down the road of, okay, now what's borderline there and which way do you lean? Yeah, no, it's really tough. Uh, <laughs> and allele frequency by itself, is that what you're getting at? Um, yeah, or just thinking yeah, of thinking ahead to your algorithm that's been developed, and you know, then where do we where do we make yeah, cutoffs right. there? That's a whole that's a whole another conversation. <laughs> Honestly, by the time that algorithm ever gets developed, we'll probably be just testing everyone with cancer, anyways, for germline mutations. I do think that that's where it's going. I mean, I know that um, uh, you know, Vitae, uh, I, they're they're really uh, pushing this uh, hard. Uh, they have uh, unless by two years, they've had numerous publications just on kind of like testing all comers, you know, uh, rates of germline mutation seen in, in those uh, individuals with cancer. Uh, uh, you know, we'll see how, uh, what's shown at ASCO. I haven't looked at the abstracts yet, but uh, I think they have at least one podium on this. They have, you know, two or three abstracts or something. So, um, you know, I, I think it's a matter of time. And even right now, I mean, if, if you look at the way the uh, HBOC, you know, NCCN guidelines are written, there's, there's kind of these cutoffs and it's like, well, 5% or above, you know, uh, prevalence. Yeah, we should be doing germline testing and between 2.5 and five, you know, it should be kind of this consider germline testing and below 2.5, don't worry about it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, but it's kind of like, you know, even, even those numbers, you know, where did they come from? And, mm -hmm. you know, if somebody has a yeah, exactly. 4.9% chance, you know, you know what is Do we round up? So, Do we round up? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think we, we, uh, you know, I, I think there's, uh, the, the side of history that will probably win out here is most likely, yeah, we'll probably just be testing everybody ultimately with, uh, you know, cancer, just because we know that there's, uh, you know, mutations that we're going to find in those populations that could potentially be beneficial for their treatment. Also, you know, obviously family members and things mm -hmm. like that. And yeah, is, is one in 20 where we should put that or, you know, one in 30, mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, it's it, as, as costs have come down and everything uh, for all this type of testing, I think it'll just become more accessible. Yeah, that reminds me, there is a study going on through Intermountain right now, um, we're calling it the all cancer study where they're, they're trying to do that. They're just mm. doing a 105 gene germline panel on anyone with a solid tumor, regardless of indication and looking at what, what are the incidences of pathogenic findings and would, would they have gotten to clinical care based on family history, personal mm. history. Um, so we're yeah. about a hundred, little over a hundred patients in on that one. So it'll be exciting to see what the results are from that study. Yeah. Um, oh, and I'll show this, um, let me show this real quick. Because if people haven't seen, um, 
Sorry, I'm uh, taking forever here. Can people see this article? Huh, does it look normal or is it, or is it strange? A little skinny. And it's Real showing skinny. the Myriad Oncology live website. Uh, okay, yeah. Let me uh, monitor issues. Let me uh, reshare <laughs> there. This will be better. Um, yeah, this is a paper that uh, uh, um, friends from Invite also put out. Uh, Steve Lincoln, um, you know, some many people probably know uh, some of these authors, um, and it was looking at uh, so. This was data, if people wrote on the TRF that somebody had a tumor mutation, what's the chance it was in the germline? So for those that haven't seen this paper, it's actually pretty interesting because, you know, it kind of shows you that, again, it's getting at the whole concept that a priori risk and everything to some extent where, you know, if somebody came back in the tumor with an Axon2 variant, which was very rare, uh, you know, of those two, they were both in the germline essentially is what this is saying. And then what you were getting at, like if you go down to TP53, uh, you know, unlikely, you know, somebody, if somebody wrote on the TRF, like, you know, this was a, a something tumor with a TP53, you know, whatever mutation, uh, and then uh, the germline testing was done. Yes, very unlikely uh, that it was going to come back positive. Same thing with uh, APC. So you see really common uh, genes uh, that not surprising. I mean, P10 would be, you know, on this list. I mean, I don't even have to see this to guess at which ones, uh, you know, like you were saying, would probably be unlikely culprits in the germline. Uh, but, you know, you see some here, like, you know, ATM, almost 50%. So that kind of gets to that high, you know, background rate of ATM germline mutations. Look at check two, you know, probably most mm -hmm. of those are 1100 del C. Um, yeah. There's some of the founder mutations, S428F or I157T, you know, here's the MITF, you know, probably the uh, E308K. So yeah, just, uh, you know, MITF is not going to be an e like a standard uh, somatic type driver mutation. So when right. you probably do see that uh, founder variant uh, is most likely germline. So yeah, interesting article. Um, and, and, you know, this, it kind of came up on one of the old Mirror Oncology lights. We were talking with Kirsten Timms, who's one of our laboratory scientists. And I've always personally wondered to myself if, uh, if a founder mutation is ever seen in the tumor, you know, can you at that point really just assume that it's germline? And she actually said that they have uh, documented a uh, 185-DEL-G, BRCA1 mutation, that was not in the germline. So it was just hmm. in the tumor, which is really interesting. Interesting. Um, you know, on our tumor side. So it's kind of an aside, but so you always have to be suspect. Um, you know, I, I distinctly remember at City of Hope sitting in front of someone that had a, a thyroid cancer that had somatic testing, showed a check two variant, and I was just and it was 1100 del C and, you know, they were asking me what's the chances of germline. I was just like, you know, 99.9%, you know, it's just, it's yeah. obviously pretty, pretty likely at that point. Um, and it can be tricky. I mean, because the allele frequencies themselves, uh, you know, they can be helpful if, you know, something is in the tumor at a really high, uh, allele frequency. That's, uh, you know, definitely helpful sometimes as germline, but because tumors can be so unstable, um, you know, and have aneuploidy right. and loss of heterozygosity and everything, you can only kind of hang your hat so much on the uh, variant allele fraction. It's like a good guide, but yeah, it's, right. uh, you have to kind of take it with a grain of salt. So yeah, no, interesting paper if, uh, you know, anyone ever wants to really look through this. Um, you know, some of the cases they really, 
um, you know, missed by tumor testing. So these were, these were germline mutations that, uh, you know, weren't on tumor testing. Most of the time, I mean, it was because the gene wasn't either on the tumor test, which is mm -hmm. kind of gets at this whole concept. You know, a lot of people are like, eh, you know, I'm not going to do ger germline testing because this patient already had tumor testing. Well, it's like, was the gene you even care? <laughs> were all the Lynch yeah. genes even on the tumor test you just did, <laughs> you know, or whatever, you know, uh, spectrum of a syndrome uh, that you wanted to uh, look at? You know, I, I can tell you from past research with Gardent, um, you know, I don't know if things have changed on Gardent 360, but at the time, I mean, only MSH2 exon 12 was uh, part of the Gardent assay. So, you know, if you were seeing somebody with colon cancer that was young or something, and you thought that that was a, a good test to get at uh, whether that person maybe had a germline mutation in Lynch syndrome, it certainly wasn't because uh, the other Lynch genes weren't even uh, being evaluated. Um, so yeah, you really need to kind of know what assay you're testing. But I think, you know, there's no way to know everything about all these assays. Nobody, you know, not few people are molecular geneticists. So I always just say, you know, if your interest is, is germline, just get a germline test. If you're interested in tumor, <laughs> just get a tumor test. I do think that there's, um, it gets really confusing if, if you try to uh, make one um, out of the other. Well, the so. intent of the two of them is is different too, and they have different interpretation criteria mm -hmm. and, and rationale. And so one, you know, something may show up on a somatic test that doesn't get reported on a germline test because of those differences, so. Right, and that's kind of I, captured here that they had uh, 11 that had variant interpretation differences. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, you will see that, you know, germline labs have expertise in germline classification, yep. tumor yep. labs, uh, um, you know, have their expertise. They're actually completely different um, ways to, um, you know, evaluate variants. Yes. Uh, and I have that kind of, does this work? What screen are you seeing now? Uh, I'm still seeing the uh, Lincoln paper. I'm still seeing it. Let me, let me sh stop share this because this was the other thing I wanted to show today. Uh, I, I was going to say, this might be a good time. I don't know if she's uh, got her mute button ready, but Anissa from oh, yeah. Intermountain is also with us. Thank you for coming on. I'll show this in a second. Yeah, Anissa, do you want to uh, tell people what uh, you do at Intermountain? Thank you for coming on. Oh, wow. Yeah. Sorry. I wasn't expecting Put you on the spot to be. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I work at Intermountain and I'm a variant scientist uh, that I've been with Intermountain on the variant scientist team for about a year and a half now. And I work with a team. We classify variants and write interpretations according to, I guess, that figure you had up. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't work in the germline space, so I, I can tell you that it is very different, but I don't work in germline. I mostly classify somatic variants. And we usually pay attention to whether or not they're actionable more than if um, it has a predisposition to a cancer. Mm -hmm. And usually uh, we recommend on or off-label therapies based on uh, the tumor type. For yeah. And so, you know, that, well, thank you for coming on. And, and that brings up a, a thought I had earlier. I mean, you know, I, I think the field of genetic counseling right now is trying to figure out its footing in the tumor world. So, you know, the training, uh, you know, last time I checked, it was still all on the hereditary side. I assume tumor now is more in the training, um, but, you know, people can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but yeah, the, the world now is getting very different. 
And uh, you know, how do you, how do you see at Intermountain the genetic counseling team fit into the tumor space? I mean, it sounds like Anissa, you're in the lab pretty heavily, and Mallory, you have some overlap there too. But you know, are people doing some of the uh, counseling on the tumor side, or ordering the tumor testing, or is it still being largely uh, from the uh, healthcare provider or MDD? I, I should say APP. Say most of the time it's you know an oncology provider, uh, not a non-genetic counselor is how I should say it. Um, that's ordering the tumor testing, um, and the genetic counselors are mostly sticking to the germline. But we've definitely been trying to cross collaborate to, again, educate each side of, you know, when when should a patient be referred for germline testing because of a tumor result, and how do, you know, we teach our genetic counseling team to, to counsel based on tumor results. And that's where the, the partnership, you know, with having them being able to, to talk to Anissa and say, you know, tell me more about this variant. What is this? Um, it's just an awesome resource. Yeah, yeah uh, absolutely. Have you guys changed any of your initial counseling or informed consent to be more clear about germline versus tumor? Like if you know these certain patients, like a colon or an ovarian is definitely going to get a tumor. Do you spend a couple minutes differentiating the testing? You know, that's a good question. I think, I don't think anyone from our, directly from our oncology team is here. Um, I think they're currently being done kind of independently, maybe a little bit more siloed of this is, you know, I am the oncologist, I'm doing direct um, treatment. Um, whereas, you know, I'm, I'm the genetic counselor and I'm, you know, more interested in the germline. Um, so I think I think that's really an interesting point, Diana, and a, something that I'll ask our team and and you know how often do the two tests happen kind of simultaneously and and do the patients come saying, well, I already had genetic testing on my tumor. I'm I'm sure that happens, and that the, mm -hmm. at that point they're going to explain, you know, somatic versus germline. I know you know certainly they're they're able to to differentiate between the two and explain that to a patient, but I'm not sure if as kind of standard if they're discussing the two. Yeah. Yeah. It fits our skill set well. So yes. <laughs> uh, I'm going to show that um, the thing I was uh, showing that Anissa uh, also mentioned. So, you know, for those of you who do, who do not know, just from an education standpoint, I mean, the, you know, somatic testing, so tumor testing, uh, variant classification is very different uh, than ACMG. It, there's some overlap and nuances and things, but, um, you know, the actual tiers uh, are very different in themselves. I mean, you know, tier one is really, you know, that there's an FDA approved therapy of some type or really well-powered study. So you see right there, I mean, it's coming at it from a therapeutic angle and not uh, from a, you know, syndromic or, you know, matching with hereditary family history or anything like that. There's no Champre criteria here or anything. So it's a, it's a different way to look at uh, this world. And then it really kind of downgrades quickly to the point where, you know, there might be some with potential clinical significance and you would call those, you know, 2C or 2D. And then that's kind of it. I mean, then it kind of gets into just VUSs and benign variants um, that really don't have any uh, known, you know, targetable uh, actionability. So yeah, very different. Um, you know, and, and um, it, it's been, you know, I've seen an interesting journey uh, throughout uh, my career already uh, with tumor and germline classification. And I remember when tumor sequencing first started getting really popular, like in the beginning of the 2000s, um, 
there was this weird concept kind of floating around that I'm glad that it really has kind of been going away that, uh, you know, if you, if you have a, a mutation, in the tumor that you really do need to treat it totally separate from a mutation in the germline that, you know, you could classify something as pathogenic in the tumor, but that doesn't mean it's pathogenic in the germline. Even if you saw that same exact variant, it was, it was almost like that two worlds were just completely split. And, uh, and people are looking at, you know, particularly around like TP53 and things, uh, you know, it was just, well, you know, this is a TP53 driver in the tumor, but, uh, even if this was in the person's germline, we would just call it a BUS, it, you know, it, the, even if it's the same, uh, you know, base and amino acid position and everything. So, you know, I think that's really merged together more and you're seeing some, um, you know, reporting guidelines now from like ClinGen and things starting to merge, you know, if it's been seen as a hotspot in tumors that, yeah, it should be considered as, you know, even in the germline for variant classification and things like that. So I am glad to see that there's more continuity now between the two, but uh, it's still a very confusing world. And, um, you know, a lot of this doesn't take into account all the low penetrant variants that are floating around out there and, you know, how those work into whether they're associated with germline risk or uh, tumor risk. So we have, we have a lot to learn here uh, as this world really intersects. And they really have been separate worlds. I mean, really, it, until the past few years, uh, we've been, you know, people have been largely getting tumor sequence. I mean, people have largely been getting, you know, germline sequencing. Tumor sequencing now is really revving up. Uh, but even today, I mean, you know, there's not many labs offering like a, a well-synced, you know, tumor and germline offering or anything like that. So they're still, the worlds are still fairly separated. And I think there's a lot of room to grow. I mean, you know, you brought up pharmacogenomics before Mallory, it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, we're talking about hereditary cancer, but you know, if you're treating somebody with chemotherapeutics and things that, you know, why not bring some germline pharmacogenomics into that? I think there's a lot of opportunity where we can really start using the germline to inform treatment much better than we're doing uh, right now. Absolutely. There's so much opportunity. It's almost like yeah. where to begin. It's Plenty all to do. all the options. Yeah. So Diana, I don't know if you have any questions on the chat. Um, I did have one a minute ago that uh, when you were talking about the mutations. So would you expect a germline mutation to always show up in the tumor and and I guess be a driver of that cancer yeah. or have you seen instances where it's not? I mean, I can, I can defer to our guest here if she wants to take a stab at it. Yeah, and I will not claim to be a, a variant scientist by any means. Um, but from my understanding is that no, a, a germline mutation doesn't always show up in the tumor. Um, and that can be for several different reasons. Um, well, sometimes it could just not be in the report because maybe it is pathogenic in the germline, but maybe there's no associated therapy with it. And so it's not, so, it's something that gets classified as, you know, just benign or a VUS in the tumor um, because it's not going to drive any therapeutics. And so you could, you know, quote, miss it. But again, that goes back to that idea that the testing is kind of for different reasons. Um, so you can't use, you know, one can inform the other, but it's not the best the best way to go about testing if you have clinical concerns. Um, there can be different uh, filtration metrics that might filter out a, a germline variant um, for various platforms. Um, the um, percentage of tumor that's in the sample that's being sequenced can also have an impact. Um, so there's mm -hmm. many reasons that a, a germline variant might not show up in a, in a tumor sample report. 
Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, a big one is, uh, in my mind, is uh, copy number variation or rearrangement. Yes, I mean, yes. You know, yeah, and we didn't even get into that. But, you know, tumor testing is not, you know, it, it's not set up to look at copy number variation. I mean, you know, uh, if people know about, you know, a, a good example, even like an inversion, like MSH2 inversions, like the Boland inversion, I mean, uh, for Lynch syndrome, these are things that just wouldn't get picked up on tumor testing. I mean, the, the test isn't designed uh, for that. Uh, I mean, it might be able to do it, but you have to be, it really takes a lot to be able to do next generation sequencing, copy number variation, where you're, you know, not using techniques like MLPA and things like that. Um, so that, that's always a big one for me. Also reclassification. I mean, that's one that um, I think slips people's mind a lot. And, you know, look how many variants we've, recla I mean, you know, our lab's done tons of reclassification. I mean, um, you know, there was a, a Merch article last year. I mean, I had a, a JNCI article in 2018 that looked at, um, you know, kind of all the major labs at reclassification rates. And, you know, it's pretty getting pretty common. About one in five, you know, germline uh, VUSs are becoming, you know, reclassified over time. So, uh, and I think, you know, we're, as we learn more and more about VUSs uh, in particular, uh, you're going to see more reclassification. So, um, you know, tumor testing, that's just really not part of it. I mean, it's kind of a one and done. You, you test and figure out if you can do a treatment. And then if anything, you know, in the future, um, you don't really necessarily care as much about a reclassification as you do. Has the tumor changed if it comes back, you know, and then, um, you know, it might bring up rebiopsying or liquid biopsy or something like that to now reassess the, the tumor. And again, that's another point in time evaluation. Yeah, it's an interesting difference between the, the somatic and the germline, because, you know, the germline is the germline and it's not going to change. And so we have, you know, we now have that data and it's good. We know that variant is there and we just have to wait for the information to catch up, but the, the tumor can change. And so it is very much a, a point in time, just a nuance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. So any, any, any other questions from our audience? Anything on people's minds? Ask anything you want. You've seen challenging cases out there. That's what I was going to ask um, to Valerie or Anissa if they've had any interesting cases lately that have popped up that you thought, yeah. um, oh, good thing that, you know, genetics was involved or we found this, you know, therapy for somebody purely because of the collaboration between everyone. Yeah, as an integrated unit. Yeah, I know that's totally putting you on the spot, so. <laughs> but. Um, I, I'm trying to think of one, but I'm sure there are several. Um, I lose touch a little bit on our clinic, when our clinical GC team takes over, um, but certainly, you know, we've referred plenty of patients for germline genetic counseling. I know they've received it and, and had testing. Um, we're hoping, I believe that they're out there tracking that data and we'd love to have, you know, either a GC student or, or somebody work with us to publish those findings and um, share that experience more publicly with what did we find and what were the implications and which patients did we help. Um, mm -hmm. Anissa, there I'm was sure a good case yeah. um, on this week. Uh, it was a young woman with breast cancer. So it made sense that she had genetic she had germline testing way before she had any right. other tumor testing and was BRCA positive. But unfortunately, um, she experienced a metastasis. Mm -hmm. And having that information from your clinical team was great for the medical oncologist right. 
in, and it became a part of a discussion of putting her on a CDK inhibitor, putting her on a PARP inhibitor and the, all the trials around that. So it was neat to see um, the germline already impacting, like it was the information ahead of time, which is really valuable. <laughs> yeah. Way. Sometimes I'm like, oh, those are my favorite is when there's already been germline testing, <laughs> but then that also makes me you know, sad that there's already been concern and that maybe then that this is a recurrence. And yeah. so it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a difficult topic as well, but yeah, it's exciting when we can find, Anissa certainly loves the PARP inhibitors, um, but it's exciting when we can find treatments and find answers and, and help take care of, of these individuals better and help them experience a fuller life for longer. Yeah. Mallory, I do have a question. My name is Susana. I'm a genetic counselor with medical support here. Um, Hi. At Myriad. Hi. Um, so my question has to do with implications for tumor testing that are not treatment related and how are we going to deal with those? So for example, um, our team talks to patients that have um, possible somatic, somatic TP53 mutations in their blood about the higher chances of developing a hematological cancer down the line. Um, there's no NCCN guidelines for that. What are the efforts from our field to provide some guidance to clinicians on how to manage these patients? And we also made, we're starting a study on TP53 for all mutations found in blood in this gene that were in the mosaic range. We followed these patients over time and the common consensus in my team was that a year after these patients were tested, most of them were deceased. That really was very notable from our study. It, it, did, it wasn't completed, but I guess my question is, you know, when we look at these findings and from the clinical standpoint, we know that they might mean something else, that there's some concerning data there. How do you, do you bring them up? Do you, or do you target your conversations around treatment only? That's a, a really good question. So far, I think we've been pretty focused on treatment only. Um, you know, certainly there's been a couple variants pop up um, that are maybe suspicious for germline for a non-cancer syndrome. Um, so which is a little bit related to your question. Um, so certainly we've been trying to advise on those and, and refer to genetic counseling as well. Um, specifically in the myeloid space, we do have um, a myeloid malignancies panel that we've been also trying to focus on um, identifying patients undergoing that testing who could have a, a germline mutation and, and what that could mean for them and for their family and their prognosis. Um, but as far as, you know, specifically with your question with TP53, um, we haven't been digging quite that deep at this time. Got it. Thank you. Yeah, we were we were doing a lot of that at City of Hope, um, Susanna, and I, we, you know, in the um, I believe when people order Myra's right now, if a TB53 variant's found, um, there's an insert for that study, which is the Lift Up study that's with uh, Dana Farber, and uh, was with City of Hope and Baylor. Um, I, it sounds like you were talking about something else, maybe with Brad Coffee. Uh, yes, with Brad and, um, and mm -hmm. Debbie. The study, you know, it was really difficult. So it actually was not completed. But you're, you're right about the LIV study. Um, 
I've seen those inserts, but but yes, it, it was a study that was started by the lab directors. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and you know, I, I had that uh, paper a few years ago when I was still at City Hope with Debbie and, uh, and Brad. And then, you know, that kind of was like the follow up to Brad's paper looking at common variants uh, that were likely clonal hematopoiesis. Uh, so, you know, on, on Myris, it was a ATM, CHECK2, and TP53 were like mm -hmm. the, the common ones that we see on the germline side. Um, and yeah, it spun out a ton of research. Um, and uh, one of those was uh, that uh, TP53 study. Um, and so that's a good study. So people have, uh, you know, it's R01 funded uh, from the NIH NCI. Um, I was a co-investigator, not anymore since my new job, but um, that uh, uh, the, if you look at uh, LIFT uh, uh, UP, so lift up uh, study for TP53, uh, yeah, they'll take samples. There's a serial uh, follow-up component uh, of that and outcomes uh, data collection. And yeah, that's kind of what it's for is really to sort this whole thing out as you brought up Susanna is uh, like, you know, how much is it, uh, you know, what's the phenotype belief for meaning in the, in the patients that have uh, germline variants? Um, you know, we were looking for other modifiers, potentially a penetrance uh, using uh, array data. And then uh, following people with clonal hematopoiesis, um, you know, long term to try to get a sense of, you know, what other variants, uh, you know, because that might just be the tip of the iceberg if it comes back on a, uh, if you see a TP53 variant come back on a germline panel, you don't know what's going on with the other genes like DNMT3A and ASXL1 and all these other genes. So uh, we were following them with a, with a panel, actually, that I made at the time. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, looking at serial changes over time and then, yeah, tracking the people developed leukemia. So there's so much to do there and heart disease. I mean, geez, uh, you know, it, it's a very complex uh, topic and it's very scary for a lot of uh, even, you know, well-informed genetic counselors because, uh, you know, people that take care of genetics patients, I mean, don't tend to think about testing somebody for hypercholesterolemia or atherosclerosis, you know, <laughs> or doing bone marrow biopsies for leukemia uh, rule out. So uh, there's, it's, we need to learn a lot more on how to take care of these patients. And um, yeah, but like you said, Suzanne, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's probably not the best thing to have, uh, you know, high variant allele fraction, uh, clonal hematopoietic variants floating around in your blood, but more to follow. Thank you, we do we do flag some of these on our Theramap reports. We have a list, you know, if we suspect that there's clonal hematopoiesis or clonocytopenias, um, we do flag these and you know just let the to let the physician know that you know we have limited information on the solid tumor side, but it's possible from the variants we see. So you're saying like like in the tissue, if you see maybe like a DNMT3A variant or something like that. Yeah, stuff like that. And it's based, it's based on the tumor cellularity and the VAF, you know, it's mm -hmm. like suspicious if it's a low VAF, but a high tumor cellularity, then we'll be like, oh, you know, maybe some clonal hematopoiesis is going on, cytopenias, and we yeah. just flag it. I mean, we can't say definitively that, what, that that's what's going on, but those could be floating around if it's a high tumor cellularity, low VAF. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, great. Well, we're at time. Um, so thank you so much, Mallory, for coming on. Anissa, thank you so much. This was fantastic discussion. Um, you know, I hope uh, people got a lot out of it. Uh, thanks for leading uh, the chat and everything and uh, 
chiming in, Diana, very helpful. And uh, yeah, join us again in uh, two weeks. Um, we'll be getting into uh, polygenic risk scores. It'll be really exciting. And yeah, hopefully we have some, some good guests at that time. Uh, but yeah, thank you, Mallory, again, for coming on and really you know, diving deep into all the fun things going on at Intermountain in Genomics. You guys are world-class for sure. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for the last minute assist from Anissa, the unexpected yeah. assist. <laughs> yeah, came in, came in, helped out. <laughs> all right. Thanks everybody. Have a good rest of your Thank night. Thank you.